Let's uh, turn to John chapter 20. We'll be dealing with uh, 24 through 29. It's a small little bit today. Um, there we go. But an important portion of this. So, hear the word of our God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John recording these appearances of Jesus, that he records them as signs to us as to the true identity of Jesus. He records them so that we might believe, and so we ask that you would deepen our faith, and that those who don't believe would come to believe. And so instruct us and illumine us by your word this morning. So that we too with Thomas would declare, my Lord and my God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you poked fun at me this week. I saw those Babylon B references to me. And now I poke fun at you. <laughs> because I was not going to have a, a sermon illustration that tied into a movie. But then last night, here I am, watching Interstellar with my daughter. And it's the exact thing I was going to talk about. So I could not resist the temptation that was before me. Actually, this was two nights ago. Friday night, Jade and I were watching. That's her new thing, to sneak downstairs and watch a little TV with me before she goes to bed. And uh, I had already started to watch Interstellar. And there's this one scene. The main character, whose name is Cooper, um, goes to a parent-teacher conference. And uh, this takes place in the uh, some unknown future time in, uh, on Earth. And uh, the, the Earth is dying. And everyone essentially, because part of what's happening is that they're not producing enough food. And so all of these other pe people who did other jobs are now basically being enlisted to be farmers. And so Cooper used to be a test pilot and an engineer, and now he's a farmer. And he's sitting there, and the reason for this was that they had 
lumped his son, like everyone else, into farmer category with you know those great tests about your vocation. And somehow it got turned to the question of his very inquisitive, very intelligent daughter, and it came up with the fact that she was correcting her teacher. And her teacher was outraged because her teacher and everyone else knew that America had never gone into space, they had never been on the moon, and that was just propaganda in order to bankrupt the Soviets. A truther. The world is filled with truthers. People who believe things that are erroneous, and yet will never be moved off their position precisely because it's not logical. When it comes to that kind of thing, they're not being logical. And there are people today who believe we never went to the moon, that that was just a studio stage somewhere. There are people who believe that the government blew up the World Trade Center on 9-11. There are people who believe the world is flat. Yes, there are. There are people that are very hard to move off of their positions because their presuppositions run so deep. Sometimes we can be the person who won't move, for better or for worse. Thomas is a man that will not be moved, or so he thinks. Our big idea this morning is that doubt can result in deeper faith in Christ, not must, not will, but I say might or can. Let's start with the reality that people struggle to believe in the resurrection. To the outside world, we sound like truthers, I suspect. John mentions here something that he didn't mention about the previous appearance of Jesus to the disciples, and that is that Thomas was not present. He was not there with the rest of the disciples when Jesus appeared, and so we have some questions. You see, John doesn't say why Thomas wasn't there. Was it that he was too distressed, too distraught over the death of Jesus, that he hadn't gathered with the brothers to pray? Was he perhaps only just late in arriving to that appointed meeting? I seem to think that Thomas may have withdrawn at the time when he most needed fellowship. This is a common pattern that happens when people are distraught, when they're overwhelmed, when they feel afflicted, they tend to remove themselves from the company of other believers and from people in general, and they tend to isolate themselves. And that's very dangerous. We see that here even in the example of Thomas. He's withdrawn, he's not present, and therefore there's a sense in which he misses out on grace. Because we have the rest of the disciples rejoicing because Jesus is alive and Thomas still in the doldrums because he believes Jesus is dead. The Scriptures, of course, warn us about absenting ourselves from worship without good reason. 
Hebrews 10, for instance, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And one of the reasons why this is here is it recognizes that we need to be encouraged, particularly when life is difficult, and we need one another to encourage us. Sometimes we, when we withdraw, we're, we're cutting ourselves off from the very people God intends to encourage us to stir up our love and good works. And so we miss out on grace because we've separated ourselves, isolated ourselves. J.C. Ryle notes, We little know how dependent our spiritual health is on little, regular, habitual helps and how much we suffer if we miss our medicine. I don't know how much I miss my medicine. I seem to forget to take my medicine on Sunday mornings. I don't know what that does to my body, aside from putting my blood pressure higher than it needs to be. I don't know what it really costs me. But I shouldn't forget to take my medication. And so we shouldn't forget to come and receive the medicine of Jesus on a regular basis. How is it that we miss it out? How is it that he wasn't there? Well, we see that the ten men, the ten disciples who were there, and as I said last week, there probably were other people there. The Marys were probably there, and and other disciples of Jesus were there. These people that he has known for years say to him, We have seen the Lord. Okay? These are not strangers who are coming to him and saying, we have seen the Lord. But these are his closest, most intimate friends from the last three years. Okay? People he has walked up and down Israel with. People that, you know, they've slept in the same tents and in the same homes. This is not people they see once a week for five minutes. He has invested his life with these people. And they say this, And his response is, unless I see. Unless I see the indents that the nails made in his hands. Unless I place my finger in that wound. Unless I can stick my finger in there. And if unless I can stick my hand in his side, the wound in his side, I will not Believe, even worse, I will never believe. And so he really sets this condition of not just seeing Jesus, but touching Jesus, sticking his own fingers and hands into the holes of Jesus to make sure that Jesus is not an apparition. To make sure Jesus is not like Samuel in the passage we saw from 1 Samuel this morning, where Saul called forth In the seance, Samuel, they believed in ghosts. He wants to make sure that they didn't see a ghost. In other words, he's not trusting the testimony of these people that he knew and he loved. Their testimony is insufficient. He needs evidence in order to believe it. 
because it is, in fact, incredulous. This was, let's be fair, beyond his experience to a degree. Remember, where was he when Jesus raised Lazarus? Right there. And so he knew people could be resuscitated from the dead because Lazarus had been in the grave for a few days. But this is a little different because Jesus himself was the one who was dead. And there was no other Jesus to stand outside his tomb and say, Jesus, come forth. Thomas had also heard the promises of Jesus that he would take up his life again. And so he he should have been able to believe. But still, this is incredulous to him. Let's recognize as we think about this, as we think about Thomas, is that Thomas is not Peter. He's not impetuous. He's not bold. Neither is he John. Okay? Thomas, as we see in John's Gospel, for instance, always seems to miss the point. He seems to be rather pessimistic. John 11, before, when they're going to, going to go to uh, Bethany to, to see Lazarus, actually to raise Lazarus, but he doesn't understand it. And so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. In John 14, we see Thomas saying to Jesus, when Jesus declares that where I am going, I will bring you with me, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Which leads to the famous statement of Jesus that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me. And so here's Thomas, sort of like Eeyore, we're all going to die. He's the nervous Nelly. He's the, he's the depressing person, the, 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 the down disciple, perhaps. Which should make us realize that Jesus' disciples, including us, have a wide variety of personalities. We are not all the same. We, therefore, we do not respond to everything in the same way. We all have different struggles. We all have different blips but we're still disciples. Amy was relating to me an experience that she had at the gym this week. And there was this uh, new lady that was in her class, and she looked rather frail, and uh, everyone was kind of worried, and Amy kept trying to keep an eye on her in the mirrors uh, because she thought this lady was going to keel over at any moment. Okay, And uh, after the class, they pause, and a couple of them come around this woman to make sure she's all right. And Amy was there. And the lady said, well, you know, when you hit 70, it's really hard. <laughs> and the lady who was behind her said, was thinking about this, one of the very active ladies who's about 90. <laughs> okay? Different people, different thresholds, different strengths, different weaknesses. And it's the same way in the church. We're not all Thomas. We're not all Peter. We're not all John. We're all very different. And sometimes we need to remember that. 
so that we're gentle with the foibles of our brothers and sisters. But we also recognize here that Scripture does not hide the faults of God's people. We see here, this is one of the twelve disciples. And we get a picture of his frailty, of his obstinance. And we see, just as we have seen pictures of Peter's obstinance and his frailty, many of the main characters in the Scripture, we see their weakness. Think of David. Think of Abraham who kept lying to save his own skin because he thought people would kill him for his wife. We see the weakness of Samson, the strongest man who ever lived, because he couldn't resist women. And so we, Scripture is honest about who we are. And I think it does this in order to point us to God's patience. That the only people He has to work with are people like us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians, this treasure is in jars of clay. Clay jars are very fragile. They're not the important thing. It's the treasure inside the gospel that is what matters. And so in light of this, we should be encouraged not to hide our faults from God and not to hide our faults from one another. Too often we wear masks around one another. We pretend that everything is okay when really it's not. And then how can anyone encourage you if you don't tell them your need? How can anyone stand beside you and lift you up in prayer if you don't share your burdens? And so there's a call here, I think, by the example of Thomas to know and be known by one another. But praise God, a week later, Thomas will be present. And this seems to indicate to me that they stuck together, that they were patient with Thomas. They didn't say, Thomas, we can't believe you don't believe us. Get away from us. But that Thomas was still welcome in their midst. And so we see that the resurrection challenges all that we think, all that we know about the world. It's hard to believe in. Those of us who grew up in the church don't always understand that. Secondly, the resurrection reveals Jesus' divinity. The scene is almost identical. It just happens eight days later. And so this is probably an inclusive use of time. So they're including the day that it, um, the first day that Jesus rose from the dead, that Sunday. So this is the next Sunday, the first day of the week, a week after the resurrection. Just as before, the doors are shut, presumably locked. The one difference is that Thomas is there this time. And Jesus appears amongst them again. And again, he says to them, peace be with you. Well, hadn't he already given them peace? Hadn't he emphasized the peace by saying that twice? Was this only for Thomas or was this also for them? It's also for them because they're once again in the room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. 
This is another reminder of God's patience with us. Although we may have the blessings of the gospel, we don't always fully enjoy them. Because we're not trusting. I've got to get a new phone. See, my phone is dying. I've got one of those iPhones. And I'm one of those people who doesn't use the iPhone to its full capabilities. It can do so much more than I ask of it. Although I've gotten better about asking Siri things, and Siri has gotten better about responding to me positively. I I think there might be hope for my relationship with Siri in the future. Okay? I have access to all of this. These great blessings of the smartphone. But I use so little of it. That's us with the gospel. We have these blessings in Jesus Christ, but often we don't make use of them when we need to. And that's the disciples right here. Jesus needs to remind them peace. Because while you have the peace, you're not living in peace. The fact that you're no longer at war with God because of me, he says, needs to permeate how you respond to the world, and it's not right now. You're still acting in fear. Peace. And it's then that Jesus turns his attention to Thomas. Put your finger here. See? Look. Put your hand in there. He knows exactly what Thomas said. He says it almost word for word. Now, I suppose that John could be dishonest with us, that there could have been another meeting between Jesus and the disciples, and they told him, well, this is what Thomas said. But that would mean John is being dishonest. And so that's what leads me, of course, to believe that John is being honest, that there was no additional meeting, and this points to the omniscience of Jesus. He knows what Thomas said because he is God. And he knows everything. As it says in Psalm 139, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Even before Thomas said those words, Jesus knew those words, and now Jesus speaks those words, responds to those words. Jesus is answering the doubt of Thomas. He offers Thomas this opportunity to satisfy the conditions that Thomas himself had placed upon faith in the resurrection. He offers a mild rebuke to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's a gentle rebuke. It's also an offer to believe. Sometimes we confuse a rebuke with a condemnation. He is not condemning Thomas here. He's saying that Thomas is wrong, but he's not casting him out to the outer limits, but he's inviting him in by faith. 
Jesus does not ignore our doubts. Jesus does not condemn us for these doubts outright anyway. But He invites us to believe. He gives us opportunity. He answers many of the doubts that we have. Sometimes we just don't want to listen when He answers those doubts. But here's Thomas, who has been kept at a distance because of his own doubts. Here Jesus initiates this, uh, this great encounter, and he, he's able to see, and we don't know if he actually put his finger in the wounds and stuck his hand in the wounds. It doesn't matter, because what ultimately matters is his response is, my Lord and my God. Thomas offers the penultimate confession of faith in John's Gospel. Everything has kind of been building up to this. He makes the most amazing and profound confession of faith that we find here. And perhaps it's only because he first experienced those doubts that now his faith is deeper, his faith is higher, that he declares Jesus as Lord and God, but not just Lord and God in the abstract, but his own, my Lord, my God. He owns Jesus for himself. He's not the Jesus out there, but he's the Jesus who is with me. He is the Jesus that I love, the Jesus that I serve, the God I love and serve. And so this declaration of divinity that Thomas makes, you might think that he's going to be rebuked. But Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus receives his worship because what Thomas has said is true. He was not accused of having of breaking the first commandment, Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus doesn't say, I hear you worshiping me, Thomas. You better be careful. There's no other gods. And I'm not, I'm not God. He does not say that. We see other people rejecting the worship of others. In Acts 10, we see Peter. When he meets Cornelius for the first time, Cornelius falls down at his feet and worships him, it says in Acts 10, verse 25. And Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, sir, I too am a man. We see something similar in Acts 14 with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, their Men are beginning to offer sacrifices to them. And they, they say, Men, why are you doing these things? We also were men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul and Barnabas refused worship. Jesus received worship. Because while He is a man, He is not a mere man. He is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. And finally, Thomas sees Jesus as who He really is because of the resurrection. And so Thomas owns Jesus. 
as His own Lord, as His own God. And the work of the Gospel is not really done until we own Him as our own Lord and as our own God. The one we serve, the one we worship. That's where the Gospel brings us. That's what the promise has always been. Genesis 17 on. You will be my people and I will be your God. And this is just the fulfillment of that in the life of Thomas. And so the resurrection reveals Jesus as a God we can trust, we can worship, we can serve. Thirdly, embrace the resurrection to be blessed. You see, Jesus here makes an assessment of this whole exchange with Thomas, I think, with an eye to the future. You see, Jesus accommodated himself to the needs of Thomas for his salvation, but he doesn't always do that. This doesn't mean that Jesus will accommodate himself to everyone's demands. Perhaps you've seen some of those debates. One of them is the, uh, the David Bonson debate with an atheist. And one of the familiar, th- one of the things that seems to happen in almost every debate with an atheist is they make a demand. If God is real, He will show Himself to me right now, as though somehow God has to bend to their unbelief. He's not going to do that every time. He was gracious to do this for Thomas. We shouldn't expect him to fulfill all the, any demands that we place on him, precisely because he's Lord, we're not. There is enough evidence in the Scriptures for us to believe that which we need to believe. Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Isn't that an interesting question? Is the reason you believe because you've seen me and therefore, you know, essentially, are you saying that everyone else has to see in order to believe? Or is there something more going on here, Thomas? Thomas, remember, I've told you about how the Father has given me certain people and those people will hear my voice and they will come to me. Thomas, the real reason you believe is not because you've seen, but because the Father has given you to me, because the Holy Spirit has drawn you to me, and you believe. The reason you believe is because you have heard the Word of God, and now believe it. As we saw in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So it's not about seeing and then believing. In a sense, it's about hearing and then believing. Jesus continues, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He pronounces a covenant blessing. It's not happy like some translations might put it. But this is covenant language. 
It talks about receiving the benefits of the covenant upon believing. And Peter must have been paying a little attention to this dialogue between Thomas and Jesus because in his first letter, in the first chapter, he says in verse 8, Though you, the people he's writing to, have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And here's one of the blessings. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so the blessing that we receive in believing is salvation, and accompanying with that is joy that is inexpressible. You see... The world views our belief in Jesus' resurrection as foolish and moronic. I saw once again that crazy thing on Facebook that Christians believe that Jesus is a zombie or, you know, all that kind of stuff. To atheists, we seem foolish. We seem simplistic. We seem gullible. Okay. The Father, on the other hand, holds our belief in Jesus' resurrection as beautiful and glorious. As I thought of that this week in my office, I thought of how the world views a diagnosis that uh, your child may have Down syndrome. And how the world kind of views that as the end of the world and that the child should be aborted. But God views it so very differently. As an opportunity to love. And be loved. In a way that we can't normally experience. In Florida, for a while, we had Nancy. Nancy rocked. She was awesome. Because she could pick up on things that we wanted to suppress. And she knew people who were in conflict with one another. And during greet the family time, that was part of our worship, we spend a few minutes to greet each other, she would say, hug. You couldn't resist Nancy. You can't say no to Nancy. A gift from God to get people to lay down their grudges. God sees it all very differently than how we see it or how the world sees it. So this reminds us, I think, J.C. Ryle hits the nail on the head here. Above all, let us daily repose our sinful souls on Christ with undoubting confidence as one who is perfect God as well as perfect man. And I would add, because therein is found all the benefits of the gospel. If we have Jesus, we have everything that we need. See, without faith in Jesus' resurrection, we don't receive the blessings of the covenant. 
but with Him we receive pardon for our sins. We receive His fatherly care. As it starts off this whole gospel, we receive the right to be God's children. And that means that He cares for us. He provides for us as His children. He disciplines us as His children precisely because He loves us as His children. We receive the Holy Spirit by whom God dwells in us who empowers us for ministry, who reminds us that we are adopted because He's the Spirit of adoption for us. You belong to the Father, He says. Purifying grace. All these things we receive and more because of our faith in Christ who is resurrected. All right. Everybody. Everybody has doubts. Some people have small doubts. Thus far in my life, I'm kind of one of those people with small doubts. Some people have huge doubts. What you do with your doubts matters. If you kind of keep them to yourself... They're bound to kill you. Okay? You, you will withdraw from fellowship. You may be physically present, but, you know, completely detached. Maybe you do it that way. But you will withdraw from Jesus and your faith will shrivel down into nothing. But if you bring them to Jesus, they may be resolved. Your faith may then thrive. It may be more engaged in love and service. And so this, we need to be reminded, is not the end of Thomas. Not the end for Thomas. Thomas would be the one who would bring the gospel all the way to India. But first his doubts had to be resolved by Jesus. So blessed are all those who believe because they receive Jesus who is the fount of every blessing. Let's pray. Father, many of your people here this morning are struggling under affliction that are confused. They're fearful. The possibility of persecution can make them fearful and confused. We can question your fatherly love. We can question your wisdom. We can question your power. We can be filled with all kinds of of doubts. Father, help us to bring those to Jesus. To not hide them away where they can work poison in us. But that we can be honest. But also, Father, help us to listen. 
Listen to the ways in which you resolve those doubts or call us to trust you on the basis of the love you have proven in Jesus. And so, Father, resolve these things that our faith may be deeper and deeper, that our love would be deeper, that our service would be greater. Father, resolve these things that we might be more useful to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.